Lights. You are listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 422. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Human Woman, Lorraine Sink. We are here at This Week in Marvel to talk about everything happening at Marvel, all kinds of fun stuff, uh, whether it's comics, movies, video games, toys, and more. We're also going to talk about Marvel history, especially this year we're celebrating Marvel's 80th anniversary. We also have some fun stuff later on in the episode because we are talking to two very special Marvel editors this week, current executive editor Tom Brevoort and rambunctious Ralph Macchio, who was an editor here at Marvel for many, many years, still does tons of work for us. I mean, the 80s it at Marvel were a very important time. You know, there are so many classic books like Secret Wars and Days of Future Past and all of that good stuff. But we're going to get into some also hidden gems yeah. in the 80s. But um, what do we have uh, here on the docket, Ryan? Uh, we got to talk about things we're hyped about this week, comma, including news. Uh, first up is... Maybe my favorite bit of news all year long, question yeah! mark? This is so crazy exciting. So it got announced at Tokyo Comic-Con last weekend. Marvel and Subaraya Productions are collaborating to make Ultraman comics and graphic novels. Ultraman uh, was everywhere when I was in Japan a month ago. So I'm very excited about this. I even bought a little Ultraman. You did? Yeah, of course I did. When, when in Rome... Or Japan. <laughs> when in Japan by, by Ultraman. Ultraman. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Ultraman is incredible. If you've never seen any of the series, there are a ton of mm -hmm. Ultraman series. He's basically a giant, uh, a superhero who has cool powers and sometimes turns giant and has friends and enemies and all this other stuff. But every kind of a robot face. Yeah. It's so cool. Hangs out with some kaiju, you know, just living his life. Yeah. The, it started in the 1960s and even it's the very uh, 60s. Yeah. Very 60s. The early episodes have incredible kaiju designs. They're very silly in some ways, but it reminds me of comics in a lot of ways in the way they were doing their serialized storytelling. But Almost like different universes, it felt like. So cool. Uh, so we're going to get our new Ultraman content in 2020, which is yeah. very cool. All right, but there's still even more. We just announced that some cool stuff is happening with Valkyrie Jane Foster, that comic, which is really one of my favorite books that we're producing right now. I mean, it's written by Al Ewing and Jason Aaron together, art by Kafu and Perry Perez. It's been wonderful. I mean, what a crazy powerhouse team also. I mean, Al and... Jason working together is nuts. Yeah. Uh, and so the fifth issue just came out, but it was also announced that Torin Grunbeck is joining Jason Aaron as co-writer for a new story arc starting on issue number eight coming out February 2020. And then on top of that, we announced that Cafu is now Marvel exclusive. He's sticking with the book. Cafu's art is tremendous. Has that like... There's some something about his textures and the way he handles line work and action and emotion is just spectacular. Yeah, yeah, that's all super exciting. Also, I'm very excited for this Spider-Woman. Uh, there is a new Spider-Woman comic coming out next March of, you guessed it, 2020. Spider-Woman number one has Jessica Drew, a.k.a. Spider-Woman, and it is by Carla Pacheco and Perry Perez. We released an awesome cover by Jun Young Jung. Jessica is jumping out of an exploding helicopter, uh, which really speaks to me because if you guys have gone over to Disney Plus and watched any of the old Spider Woman cartoon, uh, my favorite part is when Jessica is like, How can I get out of this situation and go turn into Spider Woman? And so she just opens the door of a helicopter and falls out. <laughs> and they're like, Oh my God, she's dead. Anyway, it's a delight. 
one thing I wanted to point out, which is it's a, this is a little late coming, but uh, when I was in San Francisco, I did two episodes of fun shows with the dudes at Kind of Funny. If you've been listening, you know we had an episode with uh, the Kind of Funny guys on our show, but their September episode of the Comic Book Club and their most recent episode of We Have Cool Friends uh, were both featuring me. We Have Cool Friends was just released, I believe it was last week, got tons of info on my origin story and my history at Marvel, and then they released the episodes. And the kind of funny best friends, that's what they call their their fan base. They've been so sweet, so kind, so supportive, because when I was doing the interview, I was talking about, gosh, two and a half years trying to adopt a baby and this like that was weighing on me and all this other stuff. But Greg put uh, like a little coda to the episode saying that now I have a baby. It's all happened. And I got all this really sweet info from the kind of funny best friends. So to everybody who has joined us from um, the kind of funny shows, thank you. I really appreciate you. Oh, that's so nice. Um, I'm going to go listen to that and see if there's anything that I don't already know about you after spending eight years every day with you. <laughs> That'd be pretty funny if there's something you don't know. I'd be, I'm gonna, I'd be surprised. I'm going to test myself. I'm going to give myself a quiz. Okie dokie. Uh, one last thing that we want to talk about before we move on to talking about recent comics is that a copy of Marvel Comics number 1 in near mint 9.4 grade. For those of you who don't know what that means, there's a company called CGC. They grade these comics. It's a sort of a third-party thing, and they have grading that goes from like 0.5 all the way up to 10. And when you're – the grades of near mint get really specific. So 9.4 is so friggin' immaculate, it's almost perfect, right? Yeah, it's really crazy because to get, like, an actual sort of 10 comic, it's almost impossible because it's made of paper. Like, even just picking something up off the rack, you're not necessarily going to get something that's that mint. Yeah, you almost have to be at the factory when they take it after it's printed with gloves on, Mm -hmm. like, put it in a sealed bag and, like... And then you put Daintily. it in the Indiana Jones um, lockup of boxes. Yep. And uh, then you forget about it. Yeah. And We're, don't let air touch it or yeah, light. Exactly. That's what you got to do. Uh, <laughs> but there is a 9.4 grade copy of Marvel Comics number one that sold for $1.26 million <laughs> at auction recently through Heritage Auctions. This was bonkers. I think this is the most expensive Marvel comic that's ever been sold. But there's also new comics that Marvel puts out, which, Ryan, you and Tucker like to read together. Tucker, my nemesis slash best friend slash nemesis. Yeah, on Marvel's pull list, Tucker and I sit together on a couch and we read comics <laughs> together. It is the coziest little thing in the world. Oh my gosh, do you share a blanket? No, he's there's a no, hog. There's <laughs> blanket stealer. Yeah. I knew it. Uh, so on Marvel's pull list, we read every single Marvel comic that comes out every week. Uh, we get excited about a bunch of them and we want you guys to be excited. So we pick a couple of them. So our picks for the week of November 27th are Fantastic Four Grand Design number two, Ironheart number 12, New Mutants number two, and X-Force number two. Just looking at this list, a lot of number twos. I have to say Fantastic Four Grand Design number two, though. I'm obsessed with the Grand Design comics in general because they take like a look back at the history of those comic teams that they're focused on and the art is so delightful and so cute and I just love and adore it. It's very exciting. All those books uh, and more you can check out on uh, wherever you get your podcast episodes, including Pandora, and you can watch video versions on marvel.com. You should do that. It's enjoyable. Yeah. So that's the recent comics, that's the current stuff. But Lorraine, we got to talk about this week in Marvel history, colon. Yeah, let's get in our little time machine. Toot, 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 toot. Here we go. <laughs> I like that the time machine goes toot, 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 toot. <laughs> 
Yeah, it sounds like a human woman's voice, but it's not. Oh, That's no. a time machine. Fair. Uh, we are talking about Marvel history from November 29th through December 5th. We've been doing this all year long. If you're just joining us, uh, there's so many episodes where you can find out about all kinds of fun stuff. We try to give a lot of context and interesting things across Marvel history. Do you want to kick us off? Sure. November 30th, 1950, taking it way back. The Arizona Kid debuts in... Arizona Kid number one, Surprise! edited by Stanley, with art by Golden Age luminaries Russ Heath and Dave Berg. The series only lasted for six issues, but it's another footnote in Marvel's Western hero history. Just a real fun look back, because when I think back of classic Marvel stories, I'm like, ladies with jobs, Western boys, soldier boys, teen, teen boys. Can you write this book where it's just like, soldier boys, that's a whole chapter. Oh. Ladies with jobs, whole chapter. I, who says I haven't already written it? <laughs> oh, and then Gorgilla the Living Gargoyle is introduced uh, in a story by Jack Kirby in Strange Tales number 74. I love the Strange Tales stories. I mean, so much of Marvel's history came out of Strange Tales where they're like, this guy controls ants. And, th- and now we have a superhero. So yeah. it's awesome. All those, all those books were so good. All right, we're going to skip ahead to December 3rd, 1964. Thor reveals his secret identity to Jane Foster in Journey into Mystery number 113 by Stan, Jack, and Chick Stone. But when Don Blake tells Jane Foster his secret, she gets all freaked out and she's like, no. And then Odin is up in his like Odin tower and he's like, oh, my stupid son. Really? You're going to give away the secret? Well, what I'm going to do is take away all your powers and then take away your immortality and you're just going to be stupid Don Blake. Uh, Thor, as Don Blake, he takes his cane, he goes down and he's like, "Uh uh-oh, what's happening? He's like, Something's dysfunctional here. Uh, so It's he, my family. Uh, when he tries to battle Grey Gargoyle, he's not able to transform into Thor. The secret thus remains safe because Jane's like, you're, you're, that's not true. And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. It wasn't true at all. Ooh. Ooh. It's so delightful. Also, I love these storyline, like the storyline with Thor trying to reveal himself because it's kind of the beginning of Jane Foster being pulled into the fight with Odin, which we see play out into comics like, even until now, like before War of the Realms, Jane and Odin just can't get along. Yeah. And she doesn't want any of his guff and he's just a doofus. He is, um, fight me, the biggest Thor villain. Ooh, I can't fight you on that one. Anyway, November 30th, 1993, Iron Man number 300 by Len Kamenetsky and Kevin Hopgood sees Tony squad up and suit up a bunch of his allies to become the Iron Legion in order to take on the titanic menace of Ultimo. And it's like, you're you're Iron Woman and you're Iron Woman and you're an Iron Man and you're an Iron Man and you're War Machine. Like, let's go fight a big robot. Just like God intended. Yeah. All right. Last bit of history is... My favorite bit of history this week. It is December 5th, 2008, because Punisher Warzone hits movie theaters, probably like five movie theaters. I don't know how many played it, but it doesn't matter. I love this movie so friggin' much. Everybody should watch it as long as you have appropriate age. It's got the Punisher stabbing somebody in the face with a chair. It's got uh, him swinging around a chandelier, just, just destroying people. It is such a like close representation of... Some of the gnarly, wild Punisher stories that I love. I'm not what really. Was the a, last... I'm not like really a chair stabby face person. I don't know what's wrong with you. I saw Frozen two recently, so that's like where I'm at. Now, Lorraine, 
we have a great sponsor this week, Marvel MasterCard. And if you want to go get yourself a copy of Punisher Warzone, you need to use your Marvel MasterCard because you'll be earning cashback rewards for buying the movie, buying your comic books, all that stuff. How, you ask? With the Marvel MasterCard. Learn how at marvelmastercard.com slash twim. Yeah, you can earn 3% back rewards paid as a statement credit on comic books, movies, restaurants, and more with the Marvel MasterCard. And you get 1% cashback rewards paid as a statement credit on all other purchases. There's no limit on the cashback rewards you can earn, and you can enjoy special Marvel benefits like uh, three months of Marvel Unlimited, the subscription service that gives you access to literally thousands of digital comics that we read. We read up on Marvel's history there every week. We do our deep dives from all of those amazing comic books. So we use it literally every day and it's awesome. And you can choose a superhero from one of six cool card designs like Iron Man, Black Panther, and Spider-Man and have like a really cool way to uh, rep your fandom right there on your card. Visit marvelmastercard.com slash twim to learn more and apply today. MarvelMastercard.com slash T-W-I-M. And uh, I think that gives us a great segue because you're going to use your Marvel MasterCard, get your subscription to Marvel Unlimited to dig into so many things that we're going to talk about right now because we are going to be talking about Marvel in the 1980s. Yeah, a decade we lived through, but don't remember. Yeah, not too much of it. Uh, We actually have to start in 1978 because Jim Shooter became Marvel Editor-in-Chief that year. He was Editor-in-Chief for nine years. And in that nine years, he... Changed a whole lot of it. We're going to dig into a lot of that stuff when we talk to Ralph and Tom and and the changes they made. But, you know, 1986, we launched the New Universe line to commemorate the 25th anniversary of Marvel Comics. New Universe was really interesting because they said, okay, let's take the idea of superheroes in a modern world, like similar to what we did with the Ultimate Universe, but Mm -hmm. let's say a kid got superpowers. What would that be like? And then every month they took that storyline as it was real time. So you would, you know, if you, you read a book in January, when you picked it up in February, a whole month in that character's life would had passed. Kind of like the nom that we were yeah, talking yeah. about in previous weeks. Totally. Uh, so New Universe, super cool. Chris Claremont and John Burns run on Kenny X-Men. Frank Miller's run on Daredevil. So many more comics came out in the 1980s. And She-Hulk that we talked about last week, the most important comic that's ever been written. Wow. Yeah. To me. (laughs) So, of course, those are some of the biggest, greatest, most impactful comic books in the 1980s. But we also want to talk about some of our favorites that we feel people uh, didn't pay as much attention to. Yeah. So I think this came up because there's... We talked about some of those books, right? She-Hulk, we talked about X-Men here, Daredevil. Those are books a lot of people know about. Why don't we shift and talk about stuff that we both have a big affinity for, but not everybody else knows as much about? So we'll go back and forth. You pick one, and I'll pick one, and then we'll we'll tell people why they should check them out. What's your first hidden gem? My first hidden gem is Fallen Angels. So you guys might know that Fallen Angels is a series going on right now, but it also was a series in the 80s. It was written by Mary Jo Duffy with art by Carrie Gamil, and it's about Sunspot. He's very angry. He blacks out with anger a lot. He goes on the run, and he just has, like, a very 80s punk rock adventure where he's, like, hanging out with all these, like, green-haired cyberpunk weirdos that are, like, doing crazy modification. It's just, like, really enjoyable 80s New York also, because I think of New York in the 80s as very gritty and dark, and it kind of plays with that as well, um, while being the most 80s coloring, just like bright and vivid and great costume designs, great normal clothes. It's just a really fun adventure. Heck yeah. 
All right, so my first one is going to be Machine Man, which is a four-issue limited series from 1984 by Tom DeFalco, Herb Trimp, and Barry Windsor Smith. BWS, the legend. So good. Okay, so it riffs on Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, Machine Man stories from the 1970s. But this is, again, full-on cyberpunk rebirth for X-51, a.k.a. Aaron Stack, a.k.a. Machine Man. These covers are sick. The like, Especially like, when you look at them one through four in a row. It's like Kirby on drugs like it's so many crazy lines they're just awesome yeah barry windsor smith just crushing it at this point uh and so this story is set in the year 2020 which is gonna be important because that's coming up yeah it actually introduces mm-hmm. iron man 2020 aka arno stark it introduces banetronics uh which we see in the current run of iron man and it's a really gnarly really fun au for the marvel universe alternate universe plus it's just stunning. Barry Windsor Smith working over Herb Trimp's art is just like the bee's knees. And then for the last issue, BWS takes the full penciling reins. Like I just want to rub it all over my face. If you don't know who Barry Windsor Smith is, Weapon X. That yeah. is the storyline. He's done a bunch of issues of Uncanny X-Men, but he is a legend for not having done a ton of Marvel work. Yeah, and it's interesting, like, now that you say that, the covers actually remind me, because Machine Man is so much circuitry, that really famous image of Wolverine falling out of the tank with all of the plugs and cords into his body, that is peak Machine Man as well. Heck yeah. Um, My next bad boy is The Thing. There was a Thing, as in Ben Grimm, series in 1983 by John Byrne, who you guys know after my gushing about Sensational She-Hulk, I'm a big fan of. Ron Wilson, Hilary Barda, Rick Parker, and Bob Sharon created the book. And it's really a nostalgic look back at Ben Grimm's life, coupled with new adventures. So you'll see all of these little wonderful gems. Sometimes it's like a flashback to him fighting with the Yancey gang. And sometimes it'll be like, oh, this thing reminds me of this person that harkens back to a run from 20 years ago. And then it sends him off into a new adventure. And it's just Ben in his like sweet, trying to do the right thing, but being a lovable grump way. And it's just really so heartfelt and delightful and great John Byrne-ness. I love John Byrne working with the Fantastic Four in general. Yeah. What I love about us doing this is I have never read this, so I want to read that that Thing series now. All right. My second pick is Hercules, Prince of Power, issues one through four from 1982. All of it by Bob Layton. I mean, he was writing and he was drawing. There's other people. Bob! Bob! Uh, it is so good. So Hercules at the beginning of the series returns to Olympus to see his family, but he's a big horny goof and he pisses off Zeus who sends him to space in order to find humility and to find some chill. At one point, uh, they're like, Hercules, go over there, hang out. They open the door an hour later. He's got three women that he's balancing on like a couch and where they've got like wine and they're like, we don't know what's going on. It's so much fun. So he goes to space. He soon meets the Rigelians, a race who they explore and they record and they observe everything in order to gain knowledge. Uh, and so the Rigelians send one of their recorders, number 417. Um, think of this recorder as like C-3PO with a bent on learning. Uh, and then the book just becomes a wild cosmic buddy story as Herc and 417 just go on adventures. It has romance, bar fights, comedy, awesome magical horses, Galactus, and more. It is so great. I love a Hercules story. Yeah. He's got what the ladies call swag. Ooh. 
And another person who has swag, not at all, um, <laughs> uh, but actually you mentioned C-3PO, and this is related to C-3PO. My next pick is Star Wars Droids by David Manick, John Romita Sr., uh, Carlos Garzon, Grace Krimmer, and Marie Severin. Uh, and this is just such a delightful romp. Uh, essentially, if you ever watch Star Wars A New Hope and you're like, hey, where were the droids during some of those scenes with those dumb meatbag humans? Uh, this basically follows their entire story as the droids get into these adventures. It's, again, delightful 80s-ness, and it ends in, spoiler alert, you've had 30 years to see this movie or more, uh, the medal ceremony. But it's just super cute, delightful, and some just, like, excellent 80s coloring. Yeah. All right, my last pick uh, is going to be about Marvel graphic novels. So I mentioned the Prince of Power graphic novel mm -hmm. a couple minutes ago. I'm cheating. I'm going with the overall Marvel graphic novel line. There were about 70 of them in the series. So the graphic novels were in a larger format than regular comics. They had thicker paper stock, different coloring techniques, really used some, some interesting and, like, higher production quality all across the board. They're from 40 to 80 pages long. They were really a prestige format for comics and they were meant to tell special stories. So my top pick from the run would be Doctor Strange and Doctor Doom Torment and Triumph by um, Roger Stern, Mike Mignola and Mark Badger. It is Marvel graphic novel number 49 out of the 70 or so. It's got Doom and Strange going to hell, making magic it is incredible. It is one of my all-time favorite comics. This is the one where Doctor Doom goes to hell to save his mom, right? Or am I thinking of a different story? Yeah, yeah. He's trying to go get his mom's soul back from Mephisto. Yeah. And it starts with a big magical tournament with Doom and Strange yeah. and all these other sorcerers, which is sort of tied into some recent stories. It's great. Uh, but we put a call out to Twitter for some of our favorite hidden gems, and we got tons of responses. Honestly, Way so more many. than I was expecting. Uh, it, it went wild. So too many for us to actually talk about here. But we wanted to compile some of them. A little speed round. What these ones kept coming up. Is this a gem or a hidden gem? So something that people know about and is just like obvious. Right. Or is this a hidden gem? So long shot. One through four. 1985 by Anna Senti, Arthur Adams, and Wills Portacio. I vote gem. Gem. Agreed. Black Widow. There's a story from Marvel Fanfare 10 through 13 by Ralph Macchio will be on the show very shortly and george perez i'm gonna say hidden gem i'm gonna say hidden gem because i don't think it's like it's in the middle i had no idea that this existed and i've never read it as george perez art and ralph macchio telling a black widow story uh all right and then um dakota north one through five from 1986 by martha tomasis and tony salmons uh alex segura who is uh one of the presidents at archie comics one of my best friends he says dakota north y'all and then Eric Goldman just agrees with all of them, saying Dakota North, all five glorious issues. I have never heard of this. What? Seriously, she, you would love. I think you would love it. She's a badass private eye. It's great. No, it sounds like something that would be very up my alley. But I have hundred percent hidden gemmed this. It is definitely a hidden gem. Uh, Eric also mentioned the next two as well, which kept coming up. And I was like, this is Uncanny X-Men 190 and 191 by Chris Claremont and John Romita. It's the original Kulin goth story. Uh, Eric Goldman pointing that out. There was um, a, a, this one kept coming up over and over again. And I'm like, this it, seems like a gem, though. It's Uncanny X-Men. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a gem. I mean, I think that there are so many small stories in Uncanny X-Men just because it's one of those runs it's very prolific it's been going around forever um, where obviously you forget little nuggets it's not like 
the the dark phoenix where she like burns herself out. But yeah. I mean, it's still uncanny X Men. Yeah, uh, David Aha, who is an artist on Hawkeye, he jumped in. He says uh, all four miniseries were the best, or my favorite ones at least. And he points out Nightcrawler, Rocket Raccoon, Falcon, and Hawkeye. He ended up following up to me saying like a lot of them are very weird and have really interesting art styles. And he's like, I think that influenced my take on Marvel characters. Uh, Cause David Aha has a very particular set like style. Well, it's so interesting because Nightcrawler by David Cockrum, who I believe was the original character design creator thought of that when he was at war, like in a, like on the front line kind of situation or like in a bunker yeah. essentially. And that the original drawing for it is so much darker feeling than what, what I think of him as like, oh, our funny little elf. Yeah. But he really looks scary yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but then he talks like this and he's like, oh, it's me. Poof, bump. I'm <laughs> bump, here now. Bump. Uh, Nightcrawler, I would say, is a hidden gem. And then Hawkeye, one through four, by Mark Grunewald, which is really cool because Mark writing and drawing – to me, though, that's a hidden gem. That that is a hidden gem, and so I like Mark's work with Hawkeye. Yeah. I think it's very interesting. In so good. Uh, you know, speaking of Mark Grunwald, we're going to talk a lot about him in this episode and the next episode when we talk to Ralph Macchio and Tom Brevoort, because Ralph and Tom both longtime Marvel Comics editors. Lorraine, if our listeners don't know what a comic book editor does, will you let them know? Well, a comic book editor is similar to a producer of a book, if you are thinking about it in movie terms. Uh, they bring the creative team together. They make sure that everything fits within the current direction of the Marvel Universe. And they they have to check every box and make sure that every single thing on that book is done. So they're really like the thread of a book in, in a big way. Um, and your favorite comics are probably as good as they are because of the editors who worked on them. I think if you follow who edits what books, you often we'll find storylines that you're attracted to through the editor as much as you will sometimes through the writer. Yeah. Uh, so Ralph started working at Marvel in the early 1970s. Tom Brevoort started in the late 1980s. So the two of them have a ton of experience and some really cool perspectives. And, you know, their, their careers span so much Marvel Comics history. They edited each of them incredibly important runs. You know, Tom has been shepherding all the Avengers books for years now in in probably the greatest period for Avengers comics that I can think of. Truly. Uh, you know, Ralph had a decade on Captain America, a decade on Thor, give or take. But I want to dig into how things were done in the in the 80s, particularly for this episode. And then we're going to get more into the 90s next episode with Ralph and Tom. I'm really excited to listen to this, too, because the 80s were a great bridge of time between sort of early print and modern print. So I can't wait. It's a Friday here at Marvel. We're recording this, so I specifically want to say thank you, Tom, for taking the time. I know Fridays are a little wild downstairs. It's, it's fine. People just won't get their comics this week. Oh, okay. Then no biggie. It's, it's okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but be a little late. Yeah. I, I wanted to bring you guys here to, because, of, of course, we're talking about our 80th anniversary right. all year long, and um, you guys have had long tenures here. Uh, you've seen a lot been part of a lot, written a lot, edited a lot, created a lot. Uh, so I wanted to pick your brains just a little bit about various things. Uh, but I wanted to start by asking a question I ask everybody who comes on the show. What are your Marvel origin stories as fans? Ralph, why don't we start with you? Do you remember how you first, you know, what was the first Marvel thing that you remember connecting with? 
You know, I was a, a child of the of the fifties. I was actually born in the fifties. So when I started reading comics, there were no Marvel superheroes. So my initial reading experience in comics were the DC superheroes, Justice League and the Flash and Green Lantern, and they were wonderful. I mean, when you were a ten year old kid, that stuff was was fantastic. And then I remember, because everything was on sale at a newsstand back then or in a candy store, I began to see these different books there. There was like Amazing Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, and I didn't pick them up initially because they looked kind of kind of dirty. Not, <laughs> not in a certain sense. I mean dirty in the sense that the artwork was not as clean or as, as, as just sort of glittering as you got when you read a Carmine Infantino Flash or a Gil Kane Green Lantern or a Kurt Swan Superman. There was something smudgy about these. So I looked at them for the first three or four issues, and I never really picked them up. And then I kept seeing them on the newsstand, and I said, let me give these a try. So I picked up the Hulk, and I picked up Spider-Man. And after a few issues, I was hooked because the, the soap operatic elements that were there that weren't really in the DC books just just got me. And then after a while, I became a complete Marvel fanatic. But that was my initial uh, origin. So cool. Tom? Yeah, mine's mine's uh, a little less straightforward than Ralph's because um, I was a child. Of, I was born in the '60s, but I was a child of the '70s, uh, and the '70s was not a great time to get into Marvel, particularly the mainstream Marvel. You know, I too started out like uh, Ralph as a mostly a DC reader, reading. Um, it was the Julie Schwartz titles at, at at DC. Not that I realized it as a kid, but that was clearly what I gravitated towards. And uh, you know, what it was is my dad was a was a perennial smoker, a chain smoker. So he'd go out to the 7-Eleven regularly to stock up on on smokes. And, you know, they would have a comic book rack there. And either I would go with him and would get stuff off of it, or sometimes he would bring things back. And um, so at a couple of different points, uh, you know, Marvel books ended up in my hands that, you know, he would run into the 7-Eleven and come back with stuff. And and I didn't like a one of them. <laughs> um <laughs> And some of it was just bad, <laughs> bad timing. I don't like them. I don't want them. Keep them away from me. Those Marvel books. Um, and as I got slightly older, um, I started picking up books about the history of comics. Uh, Jules Pfeiffer's Great Comic Book Heroes and the Steranko History of Comics. And those all had chapters or sections in them about either Marvel or the Golden Age Timely characters, and I didn't read those chapters. I skip over those chapters because I didn't like that stuff, and so there was no point in reading those. And eventually there was one summer where uh, I was bored enough one day that I went, you know what, Let me, I'll, I'll read these things. And so I read in the Great Comic Book Heroes an early Human Torch story, an early Submariner story, and the first Captain America story. Uh, and I liked them well enough. And so I went, well, maybe I should investigate these things. Um, in my area, there was a drugstore. It was part of a chain. And they had this enormous, it was probably not that big. In my mind, it was enormous. This enormous bin of comics that were 12 or so months old, 12 to 15 months old. What I've figured out since then is, they were basically buying these or getting these off the back of the truck. These were all the returns that had come from the newsstands that were supposed to be destroyed, and they would sell them for like five for a dollar. So I went to the to this drugstore going, I'll go pick up some modern stuff with the Human Torch 
and see if I like it. And I dug through this bin, and I pulled out three consecutive issues of Fantastic Four, 177, 178, 179. Uh, and I read those, and I liked them. And so now I was a DC reader, and I read Fantastic Four, or I read stuff with the torch in it. Um, I was really desperate in those days to get my hands on a copy of Origins of Marvel Comics because I wanted to read the first Fantastic Four story. And my local library, a lot of the books that I got on comics and stuff were in my local public library. Uh, I knew they had a copy, so I went looking for it week after week, and I never, literally to this day, never found one in that outlet. But one week I came across, they had Son of Origins. And I sat there and I flipped through Son of Origins, you know, on the fence, like this wasn't what I wanted. And, and literally, it's the stupidest thing in the world, literally, the fact that the, the Fantastic Four show up for about half a page in Avengers number one. As I was flipping through, oh, there they are. Okay, you know what? It's a free book. <laughs> I'll take it out of the library and I'll, I'll read these things. Um, and so from there, I read X-Men 1 and Avengers 1, Daredevil 1, and the first Iron Man story. Uh, and I started to pick those books up, and then eventually I was just buying, like, everything. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> like, completely turning it around. Yeah. Yes. It's wonderful. All right, so you guys both get sucked into the world of Marvel in your various ways. Uh, how did you start at Marvel? Uh, like, professionally. Ralph, you want to start? I can, yeah. Yours was, yours was before mine. Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> I, I was not much of a convention goer, but there was a convention in New York City that I went to. And um, as I was leaving that convention, I think I'd gone there because I heard Jack Kirby was going to be there and I wanted to get a book or two signed. So as I was leaving, it's one of these, one of these moments where fate, you know, it's either one way or the other. Just as I was about to leave the hotel where they had the convention, I heard somebody mention the Black Panther, and I turned around. It was just as I'm pushing at the door to, to go out, and over in the corner, somebody was sitting behind a table like this, and they were signing books. So I went over there, and it was Don McGregor. I saw the nameplate, who wrote the Black Panther. I was a big fan of his stuff on that and Kilraven. So I approached him, and I, I handed him a Black Panther book I had, and I said, could you sign this? And I mentioned my name. He remembered from my having written so many letters to the Black Panther. So he goes, wait a minute. He says, man, come over here, come over here. He goes, stand here for a while. Once I'm done with this, I'm going to take you back inside and we're going to introduce you to some people. I didn't know what was going on. So I, <laughs> I went back into the convention with him. How old are you? Sorry, how old are you? I was, I was in graduate school okay. then. So I wasn't that young. I was probably 22, 21, something like that. So I went back in the convention with him and he uh, introduced me, of all people, to Howard Chaikin. And, you know, Chaikin's got quite a wit, and at one point he was putting McGregor down. Now, I didn't know anybody professionally, but <laughs> at one point McGregor said to him, he says, Howie, how come every time we get together there's a fight? And he goes, no, Don, every time we get together it's a slaughter. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember this from 45 years ago. <laughs> well, anyway, we, he takes me up to Marvel. We, we go, he goes, would you like a tour of Marvel and all that? I'm just, okay, I'm not going anywhere but home. So he takes me up to Marvel. Chris Claremont is up at Marvel. You know, this is the old office and everything. And he remembers that I've written letters to X-Men. So he says, listen, he goes, would you like to interview Roy Thomas for our fan magazine, Foom, and write an article on Conan? And I go, okay, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> it's like when I come up here now, I kind of hang out, and if anybody's got any work for me, that's my, that's my character arc. Forty years ago, I hang around. Now, 40 years later, I hang around. So anyway, I said, okay. Well, what happened was after that, I would come up every Friday, like I do now, 
and I would try to interview Roy Thomas, who was trying to decide if he was coming back as editor-in-chief or if he was going to move out to the West Coast and seek fame and fortune in the films. And he never had time for the interview. So I kept coming out and just hanging around the office. And I would introduce myself to people, and I you know, met Doug Mensch and all the other guys who were working here then. And as time went by, I just started to hang out, and they would take me out to lunch with them. And then sometimes we'd go out to dinner, we'd go to a movie, and I wasn't really working here. Uh, one thing that worked in my favor was my family owned a furniture moving company. And back then, most people who worked in comics, they all lived in New York, and they were all moving one time or another, you know, from Brooklyn to Queens, from Queens to Staten Island. So I was able to get a step van and move them for free, which further ingratiated me with these guys and all. Sure. And that was nice. And I still wasn't working here. I was just kind of <laughs> hanging out. Uh, and then I, I finally, you know, uh, a guy I got very friendly with in the black and white magazine office was um, John Warner. And Archie Goodwin was the editor on the line then, and he got promoted to editor-in-chief. John Warner got promoted to the editor of the black and white line, and he said, Ralph, would you like to come up on staff and all? I went, yeah, okay. I wasn't doing anything. I was going to graduate school and didn't look like there were going to be any jobs in teaching back then, so I wasn't doing anything. It was all very casual. There wasn't anything I was really pushing for. It was just, can you do this? And I said, okay. So I came up on staff as his assistant, and I stayed ever since. That's amazing. And that's it. <laughs> Tom, can you beat that? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. No, that's better. That's, that, that's better. Mine's, mine's pretty simple. <laughs> Much simpler than that. I was, um, I was an illustration student at the University of Delaware, and the way that program works is the first year – first two years, you do kind of your foundational work, and then your third year, uh, you go into some specialization, and then in your fourth year, you're supposed to mount a show. Uh, but also, you know, like between the third and fourth year, uh, you're supposed to do an internship somewhere related to the field. And so going into the orientation, uh, you know, uh, meeting with the dean of the college, you know, about this program, he walked people through, uh, you know, this process. And he says, you know, we've we've had people here and we've put people there and there and and we even had one person who interned at Marvel. And I thought to myself, okay, that's going to be me in so many years. Um, so whatever it was, three years later, it was time to set up the internship and I sent out letters to, to not just Marvel but to DC and to like everybody else that had a comic company in 1989 So and, and was – Local enough that I could do this, so I think Kamiko was yeah, one was on, yeah, in 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 Pennsylvania, and I don't think First was operating, or I think they were in Chicago, so I didn't bother. Um, and and Marvel was the only one that responded. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I can only imagine though if DC responded. That's a running bit of business. When I tell this story publicly, <laughs> I, I'll do a whole routine about how, but I'm sure. I'm sure today's the day. Like, I'm going to go home and I'm going to look <laughs> at my mailbox mail. and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be there and I'll finally have my chance. Um, but, yeah, so I got, a, I got a response and we set up this internship and I interned in the summer of 1989 in three offices. I was spread across three offices in those days. It was uh, Bob Budiansky and Dwayne McDuffie were, in, were one and they were doing what was mostly called special projects in those days, which is a lot of uh, movie adaptations and – posters and licensing art and the second office was Craig Anderson and Renee Witterstatter and they were doing uh, Silver Surfer and What If and Guardians of the Galaxy and 
uh, a few other things. Uh, and then the third office was Greg Wright and uh, Evan Skolnick, and he was the what was then called the managing editor. Uh, these days it would be the associate editor. So he was the most junior editor, and he had a couple of titles. Uh, Shield was one, um, and he was doing the Marvel Masterworks and um, you know uh, that sort of stuff. And so I worked in those three offices over the summer. I cleared out the backlog of uh, submissions. There was a huge. There'd been a huge backlog of submissions that nobody had dealt with or hadn't dealt with successfully in about a year and a half, and I blew through those in about a week. And I had some, because I had an illustration background and I'd done fanzine work and so forth, I had a certain toolkit of, of skills. I could do paste-up. I could do simple lettering corrections. I could do simple art corrections. There's an issue of Avengers Spotlight somewhere out there in the world with, a, with half of a vision figure that I sort of penciled and that Al Milgram made look like something. <laughs> um, and so I did all this stuff over the summer, and before that summer was even over, like the people in that, that, that corner were sort of like, oh, we want to get you back on the regular. And so by the end of the year, like by November, I'd been called back up to interview for, for gigs and you know, was hired as an assistant editor in that area. You know, it started in December, and I've been around ever since. Wait, so we're celebrating 30 years of Tom Brevoort at Marvel? Yes, yes, yes. Congratulations! Yay! That's amazing. Uh, And that's nothing compared to you, but it's... Ah, you're catching up. It's it's an anniversary. (laughs) It's got a nice number to it. Um, All right, so that was 89. And, Ralph, you said, so uh, with Archie as editor-in-chief, what is that, 76? 76, 76, Um, So what was Marvel like? In 1976, what was the office like, the atmosphere? What was it like to walk into the doors? We were at, if I remember right, I think it was 575. 575. 575 Madison Avenue. Very small offices. I mean, there really was not much. Uh, there, was a, there was a bullpen. You had an editor-in-chief. You ha- he had an associate editor. Stan was still here, and he was, uh, I guess, still a publisher then, and he had his own office. We had the black and white office, which was me and uh, John Warner. And then you had a bunch of, I guess you'd call them kind of uh, proofreaders or associate editors, but no one was really editing any books in the sense that you had an office where there were five books. That, was, that did not exist. It was just a whole different setup back then. Yeah. Books would come in. They'd be proofread by somebody. Corrections might be, uh, you know, would be sent into the bullpen and all. And then the book would go out. John Verporten, who was the um, head of the bullpen at that time, uh, he handled the scheduling. So it was not in any, any editorial office. It was done by somebody in the, uh, in the bullpen. So it was a completely different uh, setup back then. And the title count was so different. It was probably, yes. what, 20 to 30 Give or take, About, compared to now, where yeah, we that's need still, to have, that's still a lot for the sure, for, for the, the number of people. You know, I mean that that way, that, yeah. that that system basically was the system that Stan had set up when mm-hmm. he was running the company, and at that point, Marvel was only releasing, uh, you know, somewhere between ten and twelve. Yeah, just, I was going to say sixteen, but yeah, yeah somewhere somewhere yeah. in there, number of titles, uh, and Stan was writing most of those, so it was it was a lot easier for one person to oversee stuff. Um, but once the distribution changed and the the breaks came off and Marvel could expand and do the black and white line and do the line of reprint titles and do all the monster books and try more westerns and try more romance comics and do more 
you know, it became a system that 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 was not really equipped. You know, the the editor in chief, the one editor that you had, could not edit every title, so a lot of things were just running because they were running, and you know, somebody would get an assignment and you would just go until somebody took you off or until the book cratered and you know or whatever really you know the editor in chief was most focused on the biggest selling stuff or whatever the hottest problem was uh and that's ultimately what led to the overhaul of that whole system when when shooter came in and he kind of imported the DC system he'd come up you know as a kid uh, working for Mort Weisinger at DC and at DC they had a number of editors, and each each editor had a certain number of titles that they were responsible for, and there was a you know editor in chief that sort of oversaw all of that. And so Jim kind of imported that system slowly into Marvel when he came in. I think he hired something like three or four editors at first, right. and then right. it just you know it grew as as it needed to grow as the number of titles went up. You would bring in other editors, and uh, and that made it a little bit more manageable. Uh, and a little less like the Wild West, which which had its good side and its bad side. Right. There is some really good material that came out of the fact that it was the Wild West. There are also some really awful comics <laughs> from that period and a lot of unscheduled reprints. Oh, yeah. Sure. See, I told you, Tom knows more about stuff <laughs> when I was at Marvel and he wasn't than I do. Tom knows more uh, of the last five, 15 years when <laughs> I've been around, too. Uh, yeah, I was just, do, do, I have, there's a great resource that Brian Overton down uh, downstairs on the editorial team shared with me once. Uh, looks like about 50 books put out in, I just grabbed a, a month, October of 76. So that probably included a bunch of reprints oh, yeah. and, and right. stuff like that. But 50s. Way more than I was expecting. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, one, one thing I did want to mention is that at that time, the staff job was not looked at as a career. Staff job was looked at as a position that you held until you could get enough books to write. The reason that I stayed around forever was because I didn't want to do that. I really was not that talented as a writer. I didn't like the loneliness of writing. Mm-hmm. I liked mixing with people. I liked the editing side of it. I liked talking to people, getting them excited about projects, which is what I thought an editor you know, should do. So I wanted to stay on staff. And, and what would happen was guys like McGregor and Mench and the rest of them, once they got the requisite amount of books to have a career, they left. Even Jerry Conway, who was only editor-in-chief for about two weeks, <laughs> he got his you know, bunch of books, and, and he left. During during the shooter period, right, is New Universe comes up during then. Yeah. Uh, Ralph, you also very integral into Ultimate Universe. Uh, what is it like to see a, a sort of new line of books come to light? It's sort of because we have so much history with Marvel, you've been helped. You know, you've seen this in various ways with New Universe, or particularly with Ultimate. Universe. Well, the Ultimate Universe came about considerably later. Yes. Um, but the new universe, Jim had an idea that he wanted to do books that had a certain realism to them. He used to say the, the, the idea was it would be the world outside your window. So if a month passed in a comic book, the month passed in real life, and he wanted there to be a certain realism in the sense that there would be repercussions from things. And um, if somebody got hit on the head, they would get a concussion. You know, he, he looked at the kind of bombastic things that we would be doing in the regular comics, and he wanted real-world consequences. And the, the New Universe line was to 
be that line. And we started out with some lofty ideas and some great people we were going to get on the books, but ultimately it didn't quite work out that way, you know. But it was an attempt to do something far more realistic with comics and to have real-world consequences to things. This was his idea behind it. Mm. Which, to me, when you, the way you describe it, also has some similarities to the Ultimate Universe and the Ultimate Universe in a, in a more modern, bringing our more bombastic superhero telling, but to a, a new universe, a new real-world setting almost. What was the formation of the Ultimate Universe? Well, that was Bill Jemis and uh, Joe Quesada, and um, I, I had uh, gotten Ultimate Spider-Man initially, and they had brought this guy in who I had never heard of before, but I guess he was doing um, creator-owned books and things like that, uh, Brian Bendis. And uh, Joe and um, Bill had the idea to mix him with a guy who'd been on Spider-Man, who had a long history there, Mark Bagley, and have me as the editor to, you know, an old-time editor and see how it worked. At that time also, Ultimate X-Men was not in my office. It, it was only later that all the Ultimate books, you know, came under my editorship. Um, but it was fun because we had our own universe. And the idea behind the Ultimate Universe was that you'd start out Spider-Man without the 40 years of baggage and continuity. We quickly got that baggage because over <laughs> a year or two, you get it all back. No matter what, you know, it's clean slate and all, then it all comes back. But it worked out pretty well, and, and Bagley and, um, and Bendis, you know, had one of the longest runs of any team, right, Tom, yeah. in the comics? Yeah, 110, I think it was, Something 110 like that. issues. Yeah, they did a tremendous amount, and it was fun when we got— um, I think Brian's still writing it now. <laughs> I think he, <laughs> we just he just doesn't realize. Yeah, we just haven't been publishing them, but— A couple of years, we'll get a whole bunch of scripts They're stacking back. up in Portland. <laughs> and we had Ultimates, which was kind of a, a way of taking—we could take the Avengers characters and do things with them— that they really couldn't do. We could do a real nasty kind of a version of the Hulk. We could do things with Giant Man and the Wasp that were kind of unpleasant. I have to say, for me, as a real you know Marvel Comics fan, I, I kind of blanched at some of that stuff, but it was going over. You know, what Mark Millar and, and Brian Hitch were doing was going over big, but, but it was just kind of nastier versions of those characters, and um, the readers were picking up on it. So, But it was a great line to edit, I have to say. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. All right, I, I do want to go back now. So after the Shooter era, um, Tom, you come in, 1989, right. right? Right. Who was editor-in-chief at that time? Was it That was Tom, Tom? DeFalco. Okay. Yeah. Um, what was Marvel like when you walked through the doors? Um, well, it was better offices than uh, than <laughs> Ralph had. Um, this was over at at, uh, at three eighty seven Park Avenue South, and you know the office space had been built and designed for Marvel. I think Marvel moved in there around eighty two or eighty three, somewhere around there. Um, and uh, you know it was uh, it was very much the 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 spirit of the Marvel that you would read about in the bullpen pages or in the pages of Foom or whatnot. Um, everybody had a lot of work to do, but it was a very wildly creative and madcap sort of an environment. Uh, you know, there were a lot of uh, kooky people doing weird things constantly. <laughs> uh, like what? You know, around, uh, you know, in an office setting around, uh, you know, getting uh, getting comics to come out. Like, do you have an example like what that you can 
<laughs> statue of well, limitations. Uh, yeah, I don't know how much we, we can how much we can mention. Really, but, but certainly, like you know, all the best examples of of that sort of thing, and most of them even predate me, are are the Mark Grunewald examples. Yeah. You know, Mark, uh, who was the executive editor at the time, um, and uh, you know, in addition to being you know steeped in keeping straight the continuity of Marvel, he was also sort of Marvel's unofficial morale. Uh, officer. Yes. Um, and so, you know, he would just do stunts uh, on days. Michelle Marsh. Michelle Marsh Day. Um, yeah. For for uh, Michelle Marsh was a was a broadcaster. She was a, a an anchor woman on a, a news program, and you know to promote it, I think it was CBS. CBS. Um, yes. You know, they'd done these Michelle Marsh posters, and they were plastered around the city in the subways and whatnot. And Mark offered a dollar <laughs> to anybody that would steal one and bring it into him. And he must have paid out about $300 <laughs> because once he had them all, he and his assistant my plastered – my Carlin uh, – plastered every surface in their office with these posters. The walls, the ceilings, underneath the vent fans, yes. in the drawers, everything was – and it remained that way for a year. And then after a year – these signs started to show up in the Marvel bullpen. M-Day is coming. <laughs> and nobody knew what this was. Nobody knew what the heck M-Day was. Oh, M-Day is coming. M-Day is almost here. Three days to M-Day. And there was this countdown. And so M-Day arrived, and Mark and Mike showed up in jumpsuits with uh, hard hats, you know, emblazoned with the M-Day production crew, and they came in, and staged this whole thing where they took all the posters down one by one and cut out the Michelle Marsh uh, faces and made them into little makeshift Michelle Marsh masks. Like they cut the eyes out and put rubber bands. Uh, and then they gathered the entire staff, the, the bullpen, the editors, everybody, and everybody got to funnel into the office <laughs> like crowding, a, a, a stuffing a phone booth. Uh, and everybody got a Michelle Marsh mask. And they filmed this. Um, so it's this eerie. It's this insane eerie. sequence of just, I don't know, 40, 50 people crammed into this office, all wearing these Same Michelle Marsh. Uh, and, and they sent it to CBS. <laughs> and CBS aired it. What? <laughs> There was no, like, lawsuit or. No, no. So this sort of thing. You know, again, that's that's that sort was, of the that's sort of the most grand, you know, sort of version of this. But that sort of thing happened all the time. Uh, I love that. That's a perfect point to end this conversation. Thank you both for being here on this week of Marvel. Sure, a pleasure. We and we'll come it. back soon. All right. All right, once again, big thanks to Ralph and Tom for coming in here. Uh, not once, but twice, because next week they're going to be back to talk about the nefarious 90s. Ooh, that was a horrifying voice. What was that? I don't know, but it was very exciting. They're going to have some fun stories to tell about that part of their careers. Uh, and I think that leads us to our question of the week. What are your favorite 90s hidden gems or favorite 90s stories? Particu I would love hidden gems from any of our listeners, but we'll take whatever you got. Uh, let us know. You can use the hashtag This Week in Marvel on Twitter. You can email them to twinpodcast.marvel.com. You can send a message to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash This Week in Marvel. We want to know. We also had a bunch of pros and pals weigh in on their 
80s hidden gems. There were so, 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 so many. So thank you to every single person who tweeted to us because we greatly, greatly appreciate it. Yeah. Patrick uh, A. Reed at DJ Patrick Reed, who uh, worked on the uh, Marvel Universe of Superheroes museum exhibit. Yeah. He's, he's a great historian. He said uh, Walter and Louise Simonson's Apocalypse Archangel issues of X Factor, Grunwald's. <sighs> Yeah. So good. Grunewald's Captain America No More, The Captain Saga, which I loved. I've been oh my I God. just read that Deep recently. Deep V for days. Love yeah. it. He's got a great costume. And the far too short-lived Stern Buscema Buscema run on Fantastic Four, issues 297 through 300. Evan Narcisse, one of our amazing creators here at Marvel, wrote Denny O'Neill and David Mazzucchelli on Daredevil. Which is cool. I, yeah. I've never read Denny's run. It's always like I think of Mazzucchelli with Frank Miller, but mm-hmm. I have to go check this out. Evan actually wrote a whole big piece on it uh, for I think it was io9, which he linked me to. Oh, love it. Matt Horak at Matt Horak, who is one of our amazing artists. He worked on Spider-Man, Deadpool and many more. He says Marvel 2 and 1, especially the Project Pegasus stuff. Yes, that's really super fun. Um, also, we had Fabian Nizieza, who said, uh, also an amazing creator, um, I'm a little partial to the first 53 issues of this title uh, with the cover of New Warriors. Uh, yeah, because he wrote all 53 issues of <laughs> New Warriors, and he also cheated because most of this is the 90s. I think there may be yeah. a couple of issues in the <laughs> 80s. Uh, Jordan Blum, who is the showrunner for Marvel's Modoc show coming to Hulu. He is uh, the co-creator for that. He said, classic X-Men backups. It's got incredible art and essential character building moments. I have to like super hardcore boost this one because like there's info about the X-Men Dark Phoenix saga that didn't make it into the original storyline. John Bolton uh, did a lot of the art with Chris Claremont writing all these backups. Uh, We have collected most, if not all of these now into some really great collections. Love that. Um, Also, Javier Rodriguez at Javier Caster said gargoyle. Yeah, I'll go with that. Sure. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Javi, of course, is uh, doing the history of the Marvel Universe with Mark Wade right now. And he's just he gets it. He gets it. He gets it. He's a cool dude. And then we've got an email in here from our friend Jason Kim. He says, dear Ryan, Lorraine and James, aloha from Hawaii. One for Lorraine. My two suggestions for your code name. One, Agent Aloha. Or two, Agent Friendship. Oh, that's so nice. He says, I think either one would be perfect for you because your positivity and happiness shines through. Oh, I didn't want to cry today, but I've already done it once, so why not add a second one? (laughs) So good. Uh, And then he says, two, happy Thanksgiving to the TWIM staff and all the listeners. Thank you guys, Ryan, Lorraine, and James, and all the people behind the scenes, uh, which there are four of them here, four of our regular producers, MR, Jorge, Persia, and Zach are here with us. Uh, And he says, thank you for all your hard work and long hours everybody puts in for making these awesome episodes. I look forward to new episodes each week. Oh, what a happy way to say bye. Um, Because that's the end of the episode. We had so much fun talking to all of that stuff. That was so beautiful. Happy Thanksgiving to all of the people who listen to this podcast, whether you're listening to it uh, over Thanksgiving weekend or later on. We are thankful for you each and every week being with us and hanging out with us and letting us talk about this insane fun stuff that we get to do every week. Heck yeah. This episode of This Week in Marvel was produced by Percy of Berlin and Zachary Goldberg. Our audio development manager is Brad Barton. Jude DeBoff is our director of audio who asks me for amazing pictures of my daughter every day I'm in the office which makes me happy. Additional production help from Jamie Freverly and Emily Kimura who I will say are integral in helping me get all the history stuff done every week. I'm very thankful for them. 
Special thanks to the Avengers on Late Night with David Letterman. Uh, and before we sign off, you know what's super cool about this? We have a secret that we've been keeping the whole show. Yeah, we have been recording this episode at Sirius XM in one of their amazing studios with their amazing staff joining us. Because as you guys know, we have a really cool bunch of stuff that we're doing with our friends at Sirius XM and Pandora and all that cool stuff. So uh, if the episode sounds a little bit different than normal, it's because they got some really great technology and amazing people here. So it's been a lot of fun. I'm Ryan. I'm Lorraine. And this is Marvel. Your universe. Your universe.